welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, December 6, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, Bloomberg calls Booker well-spoken, a House committee tells Hunter to stop voting, two more Republicans retire from the House and what that might mean, Yang releases his tax returns, Delaney is staying in the race, the impeachment update, Biden confronts a voter, and Castro releases a plan to end hunger in the U.S. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, a controversy about the racial dynamics within the current Democratic primary field. In an interview on CBS This Morning, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg made a comment about Senator Cory Booker that raised many eyebrows. It came after Gail King asked him about diversity on the debate stage. Let's listen to a clip. The next debate is December, and Cory Booker said that it could possibly be on that debate stage, no one of color, there would be more billionaires in the race than black people. Is that a problem to you? Cory Booker endorsed me a number of times, and I endorsed Cory Booker a number of times. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very well-spoken. He's got some good ideas. It would be better the more diverse any group is, but the public is out there picking and choosing and narrowing down this field. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is you had a lot of diversity in the candidates, some of whom were very competent, Why they aren't there as you narrowed it down, uh, you have to talk to other people who are experts, I don't know. Part of the conversation is, here we go, another old white gentleman. Isn't it time for change? Isn't it time for something new? Maybe, but lots of people can enter. There was no reason, if you wanted to enter and run for president of the United States, you could have done that. But don't complain to me that you're not in the race. It was up to you. Mm -hmm. And, And I thought there was a lot of diversity in the group of Democratic aspirants. Entry is not a barrier. So you're saying if you want diversity, then get in. That is exactly a good way to phrase it. Thank you very much. Now, the part that caused immediate uproar was when Bloomberg said that Booker was well-spoken. This is a synonym for the word articulate. In case you're not familiar with the issue in Bloomberg's phrasing there, there is a long-standing thing where white folks say that certain black folks are articulate or well-spoken. And that implies that people of color in general are not well-spoken. In other words, it's like saying, hey, this person of color speaks well, and that is noteworthy. That's the problem. There's a great article in the show notes by Lynette Clementson about this, writing for the New York Times, if you're curious about the history and many specific examples. And by the way, that article was actually spurred by something Joe Biden said about Barack Obama in 2007. So this is not at all a new issue in presidential primaries. Biden said in 2007, quote, I mean, you got the first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice-looking guy, end quote. So when Bloomberg made that comment this morning, it stirred things up. Shortly after that, Zerlina Maxwell asked Booker about it on her show with Jess McIntosh, Signal Boost. Let's listen to Booker's response. But what is your response to Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who said that you are well-spoken? You're a senator. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, it was, I was taken aback by it. Uh, I'll say this. Uh, you know, Mike and I have known each other for a long time. He, when I was first becoming the mayor of the city of Newark, he gave me a tremendous amount of practical support. And, 
so I, I just have a great uh, deal of uh, regard for him as somebody who, you know, helped me help the, new, the city of Newark. But I, I, I agree with you that it's sort of stunning at times that we are still uh, revisiting these sort of tired, you know, tropes or uh, the language we have out there that, that folks, I don't think, understand. The fact that they don't understand is, is problematic. And, and so, again, it, it, this is part of the campaign, and lots of people say things that uh, they wish they could take back. And uh, I'm sure uh, people, if Mike gets it now, I hope, and I hope people around him are, are talking to him about why that plays into what is for the black community in particular. Uh, just these are signs of frustration that we continue to deal with uh, issues, whether it was the blackface controversies from uh, earlier this year to uh, the challenges that I don't think folks understand with Kamala dropping out of that race, why so many people, who, you know, friends of mine, family members who weren't even supporting her, but found it just insulting sure. that yeah. she would uh, not be in this race uh, with her qualifications, with her experience, with her talent, with her gifts, uh, and other people are who, frankly, uh, very bluntly, do not have her same record. So I think that what we have as a party have to understand is that we can't win without not just the African-American vote, but we can't win without the enthusiastic support of, of black voters. And we saw that between 2016 and 2012. All of this goes back to issues Senator Kamala Harris raised in the most recent debate and which came up on this show earlier this week. Booker's reference to Harris in his response makes it clear. This is broadly about the Democratic Party's understanding of its own voter coalition and understanding the racial dynamics within it. Next up, a quick update on the Duncan Hunter story from earlier this week. Hunter announced that he would step down as representative for California's 50th district after pleading guilty to one count of conspiracy related to campaign finance violations. Well, despite that, there has been some confusion about whether he actually resigned from the House or not. The Washington Post does not list Hunter as a retiring member on their retirement tracker. But the guilty plea came on Tuesday, and as recently as Wednesday, he was still voting on issues in the House. So yesterday, the House Committee on Ethics sent Hunter a letter. It reminds Hunter that under House Rule 23, Clause 10A, his guilty plea means that he should stop voting. The letter warned Hunter that if he kept it up, the committee would take disciplinary action. At the same time, it said that technically, he didn't have to follow the rule, but they also made a point of saying they would release the letter publicly and the disciplinary action thing and so on. It was signed by both the Democratic chair of the committee and the Republican ranking member. On Thursday, Hunter did not vote. His sentencing hearing is scheduled for March 17th. And while we're on the topic of House Republicans retiring, two more retirement announcements have come out since our last show. Representative Tom Graves of Georgia's 14th District announced that he would not seek re-election in 2020. His seat, like virtually all of those vacated this year, is very likely to remain Republican. And Representative George Holding of North Carolina's 2nd District announced this morning that he is retiring as well. His story is far more complex, as there is a major redistricting effort in North Carolina. His seat is not safe, and we'll get into that more next week. 
So what is behind these retirements, and what does it mean, if anything, for the 2020 election? Well, Jeffrey Skelly of 538 went deep into this issue. If you're curious about the math and the history, check out that story in the show notes. One key idea is that there is a distinction between what Skelly calls pure retirements versus retirements where the candidate is still seeking a different political office. If you only count pure retirements, Graves and Holding are the 17th and 18th pure Republican retirements of this cycle, versus just six Democrats. But if you count those who are leaving the House to go do something else in politics, that total bumps up to 23 for Republicans and 9 for Democrats. Reading from 538, quote, In sum, Republican retirements since early August, particularly those by veteran GOP members, collectively suggest a lack of confidence in winning back the House in 2020. That's understandable, too, given the last time control of the House changed hands in a presidential cycle was 1952. Big swings are just more likely in midterm years. Moreover, the electoral environment doesn't look all that promising for Republicans. Democrats have about a six-point lead in early generic ballot polling, a measure that, even this far out, tends to be fairly predictive. End quote. So, the takeaway here is that for members of the minority party in the House, that is currently Republicans, they are likely to remain in that minority for at least the next two years. And, to be frank, it's kind of a bummer being in the minority, since you don't get to chair any committees. So, this is a logical moment for House Republicans to consider whether it's worth sticking around, given the likelihood that they will remain in the minority for at least two more years. Hiring is challenging, and it used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. In fact, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you cannot miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, listeners here can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Next up, entrepreneur Andrew Yang has released his tax returns covering the period 2011 through 2018. In the very early days of this podcast, there was a lot of tax return talk. 
At times, back then, it seemed like the Democratic primary candidates were competing to see who could release the most and who had the least income. Yang's tax returns do not expose any bombshells that I can see. And believe me, I have read a lot of candidate tax returns in this cycle. Reading from an article by Sanjana Karanth in the Washington Post, quote, For most of the years that Yang released on Wednesday, his joint tax returns revealed an adjusted gross income of about $100,000 to $300,000, mostly from Yang. A significant amount of his income came from wages and salaries through 2017, when he stepped down from Venture for America in order to run for president in 2020. Yang did not report any income from wages and salaries in 2018, though most of his income came from capital gains, writing and speaking gigs, and real estate and royalties. End quote. This would be a good time to mention that Yang began his campaign way back on November 6, 2017. That accounts for his lack of wages in 2018, no day job, but he was still earning money from stuff like book sales. In fact, Yang is the second longest-running candidate in the Democratic primary, with only former Representative John Delaney ahead of him. Yang has been in this race for 760 days so far. And while we're talking about Delaney, he released a statement on Monday clarifying that he is not dropping out, despite the recent spate of dropout announcements. Delaney's campaign said that this demonstrated Delaney's endurance. And to be fair, he has been running for 861 days. Reading from an article by Catherine Krawczyk in The Week, quote, Delaney has the distinction of being the longest-running Democrat in the 2020 race after launching his run to not much fanfare in June 2017. He's also among the most well-funded campaigns, with more than $27 million raised. There's just one catch. More than $24 million of that fundraising came from Delaney himself. And it's not exactly hard to keep running a campaign if you're paying for it yourself. End quote. Delaney did appear in DNC debates in both June and July, though his current polling is below 1% nationally. And now, the impeachment news in actually way less than three minutes. Weird. Okay. The most substantial news today is that more than 500 law professors signed an open letter saying that President Trump has committed impeachable conduct and that it would be reasonable for Congress to impeach him for that. Reading from their open letter, they emphasized how this interacts with the upcoming election. Quote, Impeachment is an especially essential remedy for conduct that corrupts elections. The primary check on presidents is political. If a president behaves poorly, voters can punish him or his party at the polls. A president who corrupts the system of elections seeks to place himself beyond the reach of this political check. At the Constitutional Convention, George Mason described impeachable offenses as attempts to subvert the Constitution. Corrupting elections subverts the process by which the Constitution makes the president democratically accountable. Put simply, if a president cheats in his effort at re-election, trusting the democratic process to serve as a check through that election is no remedy at all. That is what impeachment is for. End quote. As I say these words, the list of signatories to this letter is 520 people long. 
It is so long that they made an embedded spreadsheet and stuck that at the end of the document. Now, as for what's next, rumor has it that House members will work over the weekend to begin drafting articles of impeachment. It seems likely that these will be complete soon, perhaps as early as next week, and will be voted on in the House by the end of this month, before the congressional holiday recess. And now a story about Joe Biden's sixth day of his eight-day no-malarkey bus tour. Early on Thursday, Biden was endorsed by former Secretary of State and former Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry. But that evening, Biden got into a heated exchange with a voter in Iowa. Reading from an article by Thomas Kaplan and Katie Gluck in the New York Times, quote, The man, who declined to identify himself to reporters, falsely claimed that Mr. Biden had sent his son to work in Ukraine and accused him of selling access to the president. You're a damn liar, man, Mr. Biden shot back. That's not true, and no one has ever said that. No one has proved that, end quote. And it did not stop there. The voter had already suggested that Biden was too old to run for president. Reading again from the Times, quote, I'm not sedentary, Mr. Biden, 77, said. The reason I'm running is because I've been around a long time, and I know more than most people know, and I can get things done. That's why I'm running. He went on to encourage the man to do push-ups or go running with him or take an IQ test with him, as the room applauded. At another point, he appeared to say, Look, fat, look, here's the deal. Later Thursday, Mr. Biden said he had not said fat. Simone D. Sanders, a senior advisor for the Biden campaign, said in a tweet that the former vice president had begun to say facts, end quote. It's unclear what ramifications, if any, this exchange will have. In the room, the crowd seemed to applaud Biden's aggressive response. Then again, they were there to hear from Biden, and this was a very animated moment from Biden. Reading once more from the Times, quote, When a reporter asked about losing your temper, Mr. Biden denied that he had. You want to see my temper? Keep going, he said, prompting some laughter. What I wanted to do is shut this down, end quote. And last up today, a new policy from former HUD Secretary Julian Castro takes aim at the problem of hunger in the U.S. This comes as the Trump administration tightened work requirement rules for recipients of SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as food stamps. The new Trump policy would cut off an estimated 700,000 Americans. More than half of those people live in Texas, Castro's home state. Castro's plan is, in a word, comprehensive. Printed, it comes to about 30 pages. He begins by addressing the scope of the problem. Reading from the introduction to his policy, quote, Today, one in seven children about the population of Ohio suffer from hunger. More than five million seniors, approximately the metro area of Atlanta, are uncertain about their next meal. Rural counties are disproportionately affected, comprising 79% of the counties with the highest food insecurity rates, but only comprise 63% of all counties. African-American households are more than twice as likely to face hunger than white households. 
and Latinos are 50% more at risk. People are working full-time jobs, sometimes multiple jobs, and are still unable to make ends meet. Hunger is a complex problem, intertwined with inequities of race, class, gender, and geography, and we will only overcome this challenge with a concerted national effort. End quote. Like I said, the plan is quite long, so it is a little difficult to summarize every single point. It offers details on how to expand existing programs and protect access to benefits, while also working to support local food production and agriculture. But Castro goes far beyond simply making more food available and offering more government money to pay for that food. A whole section of his plan deals with fair pay for people who work in agriculture and people who are paid partly by tips. These are both groups that disproportionately suffer from food insecurity. Castro's plan broadens the issue to include immigration, free trade, climate change, public lands, and more. As with all policy plans, I ask, how much does it cost and how does the candidate plan to pay for it? While this is not dealt with in detail in Castro's plan, he does include a broad estimate and links to a study by the Center for American Progress on the issue of hunger. That study actually does get into the dollars and cents in a very granular way. Beyond that, Castro also points out that money spent on these programs results in a net savings on other programs, including health care. Reading once more from Castro's plan, quote, Measuring its total negative economic impact, hunger costs the American economy over $165 billion a year and would be cheaper to solve, end quote. Well, that's it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, I'll keep it quick on the outro for today. Thank you to all the folks who listened to that interview on the Words Matter podcast, and welcome to all our new listeners who came from there. You can expect in many of these outros for me to tell you about gardening and my cat and the weather, but not today. It's been a long week. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. Monday.